time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Hello, my friends. How are you? And welcome to today's edition of The Financial Physician. My name is Lou Scatigna, certified financial planner and your host. Twice a week, we have our main podcast, which you're listening to now, which goes up Sunday morning at 9 a.m. And then we have our midweek podcast that comes up Wednesday uh, at 4 p.m. Thanks so much for joining us. Just a reminder, we didn't have a, a midweek podcast last week because I was away. Uh, for a few days, and I didn't have a chance to do it. So we'll be back doing our midweek podcast uh, this coming Wednesday. Now, last week we were talking about the main reasons why people have little or no net worth when they retire. And I told you it was two words. It's houses and cars and the decisions we make on how to purchase them and how to finance them. And last week we talked about buying a house and how people make mistakes by buying too much house, financing it wrong. And today we're going to talk about cars and wasting money on a lifetime of cars. So houses are one thing. It's the most expensive thing we buy. But the second most expensive things we buy are cars. And we buy many more cars over the course of our lifetime than we do homes. And how we buy it and how we finance it and how long we keep it makes a huge difference in our financial health. Now, years ago, when I was growing up, uh, most families had one car, which they kept until it died of old age. Uh, Today, families tend to have more than one car and will buy a new one every four or five years or, or sooner. And the problem is that cars are both very expensive and awful places to put your money. Now, we're trying to build our net worth. We want investments, right? We want to put our money in places where our money will grow. Well, cars are the opposite to that. In the book, I call cars de-investments or disinvestments, which means that uh, you're guaranteed to lose value. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to put money in an investment where I'm guaranteed to lose value. And uh, we're trying to make money when we invest, aren't we? Uh, But when you buy a car, you know, there's no doubt that the value will steadily drop and it's going to drop immediately. Imagine putting your money in a stock and uh, two minutes later, it's worth 20% less. Well, that's exactly what happens when you buy a car. As soon as you roll out of the car dealership, you've just lost 20% in depreciation. So we got to understand what a car is. It's not an ego booster. Uh, It's a, a way to get from point A to point B. So we have to rethink how we purchase cars because cars are depreciating assets. Here's an example. Suppose you bought a car for $44,000, a brand new car. And that's about the going rate right now for a new car, not even a real nice one. The salesman congratulates you for making such a great deal. As, as you drive home, you feel like a million bucks, but you should be crying 
because you just lost $8,800 in value as soon as you left the lot. Uh, that's the immediate depreciation. It's roughly about 20% when you leave the lot. And, and new cars lose about 20% of their value when you take ownership, but the rest of the year, they depreciate another 6 or 13%. So uh, in the first year alone, you could be down $11,000 on the car, uh, maybe even more. That money could have been saved. It could have been invested for retirement. It just went away. And that's why cars are such a silly purchase, new cars. And if you buy 10 cars during your life at an average cost of 25000 each, which again, you can't do now, uh, you'll lose 65000 to 82000 in first year depreciation alone over your car buying life. And I'm going to talk to you in a minute about what that means toward your retirement. And although car dealers don't like this, this is one of the more controversial statements I make in the book. I say, although car manufacturers won't like it, I'm going to make a bold but true statement. Unless you're wealthy, never buy a new car. It'll damage your financial health. And that's because, again, it's a poor investment. It guarantees the immediate loss of capital, immediate loss of wealth. And of course, you know, the more expensive the car is, the higher your monthly payments are, which is money that could be going into an IRA account or more into your 401k. And uh, buying used vehicles makes a whole lot more sense, especially from the financial, uh, from the financial viewpoint. So being financial, financially healthy means accumulating wealth. And we accumulate wealth by saving and investing. We don't accumulate wealth by putting large sums of money in things that depreciate. So let's assume that we buy 10 new cars during our lifetime, one every five years between the ages of, let's say, 20 and 70. Let's, let's also say that the first year depreciation is 6500 on each car. Had we invested that 6500 and just received 5% a year return on it, at age 75, we would have accumulated $438,000. That's a nice little retirement fund that was totally financed with uh, depreciation that could be avoided. And also, you got to keep in mind when you buy a new car, you're also becoming exposed to a, a hidden danger that most people never consider. But it can cost you a lot of money. When most Americans buy new cars, they put down as little money as they can and they finance the rest. Usually they finance 90% to 100%. So if you buy a car for $30,000 and you put down $3,000 and you finance the rest, you're obligated to pay $27,000 plus interest over the term of the loan. What happens, though, if a month or two later you're in an accident and the car gets totaled? Your insurance is only going to pay you about $23,000, which is uh, the reasonable value of the car at that time because of depreciation. Now, since you owe slightly less than $27,000 on your loan, you would be out nearly $4,000 plus the initial $3,000 you put down when you bought the car. So what should you do? Number one, do not buy new cars. I mean, the average now is $45,000 to $50,000. And because it's so expensive and the payments are so high, what most people are doing is they're taking out six, seven, I've even seen eight-year loans. 
And now with interest rates high, you're looking at new car loans anywhere between 8 and 10%. You're going to pay twice for that car. And just like a mortgage, you know, the first few years of paying down that loan, you're paying mostly interest and very little of the principal, which means that you're underwater. Almost immediately when you drive the car out a lot, if you put down, say, 10% and you lose 20% in depreciation the day you drive it off the lot, boy, you're down a lot of money. And that's the problem. You're underwater now. You owe more in a car than the car is worth. And that's the beginning of a pretty poor um, situation for people because what's going to happen is ultimately you're going to want to sell the car and get a new one. You're going to owe more on a car than you can get on a trade-in. And what the dealer is going to do is roll over the difference into the loan of the new car. And now you're automatically underwater before you even leave the lot. So what should you do? Well, you should buy a two or three year old vehicle that's just coming off lease. And that's the way I've always bought my cars. Here in New Jersey, there's a, a, there's a, a chain of dealerships called uh, Auto Lender Liquidators. And what they do is when, when, when leases are up, a lot of people take two-year leases for businesses and so forth, the three-year leases. When that lease is up, the bank doesn't want the car. The bank wants whatever the car is worth. So what they do is they employ these dealerships to uh, liquidate the car. So the one that I deal with is called Auto Lender Liquidators. Uh, they have a number of different um, dealerships across the state of New Jersey. They may even be in some other states for all I know. And they get in, each dealership, about 1,500 cars a month. They go through the cars. They do a complete mechanical check on them, add a vehicle body check, uh, and they take typically the top 200 cars that they come across a month and they put it in their dealership. They put them in their lot. They put it inside of the dealership and they sell them. Now, when you walk into this dealership, you're going to see cars of all different brands and they look new. In many cases, they smell new. Uh, many of these cars, most of them actually have less than 25,000 uh, 25, miles on them. So they're relatively new. I mean, the way cars are built these days, you know, they're meant to get 150,000, 200,000 or more miles if properly maintained. So you're buying a new, a new car for all intents and purposes. But somebody else ate the depreciation, which could be as much as 30, 40% by the time you're ready to buy it. And that's the way I've always bought my car. So instead of paying 25,000 for a car, you may pay 17,000 for a car. Or to use numbers that are more contemporary than when I wrote this book, which was 2009, uh, instead of paying 44000 for a new car, you're paying 30000 for it. Now, yeah, it's, it's, it has, it's been used. It, it, it has 25,000 miles on it. Who cares? If I didn't show you the odometer in these cars, you wouldn't even know that they were pre-owned. That's how good they look. And that's how, uh, how low mileage they have. And I've purchased, I guess, over the years for myself alone, probably 10 new-looking, dependable cars from a, a local liquidator. I bought each car for less than book value. And I've always been well-pleased. I've never had a problem with the car. And the good thing about buying from a liquidator, at least the one I deal with, they price their cars below book value. They're looking to sell them and get them off the lot. The bank just wants their money back. There's no haggling. How about that? You walk into a car dealership, you look at the sticker, that's the price. 
You go on your, your cell phone and you look up K, KBB, Kelly Blue Book, and you'll see that that car is listed in Kelly Blue Book at a higher price than a dealership is selling for it. And we all hate haggling when it comes to car dealerships, right? Um, most people would rather get a root canal than go buy a new car or certainly a used car uh, at a lot somewhere and have to deal with a, a high pressured salesman. Uh, so you don't have to, you don't, you don't haggle. Also, uh, if the car is still under warranty, you get the remaining warranty. If it's got a three-year warranty and you buy it when it's two years old, you still have a year warranty on the car. And uh, you could buy extended warranties on it. You could finance it like you would a new car. You could just take a car loan. You could lease them. And we'll talk about leasing in a little while, how I don't think it's a good idea. Um, but you buy them like you, you would buy a new car. And a good thing to do, obviously, is to get the, the VIN number, the vehicle identification number, and, and check its history. Nowadays, it's really easy to do that with Carfax and other online services that report cars' histories. And uh, don't lease vehicles. Uh, I'd rather see you buy a two-year-old used car, pre-owned, uh, barely used car, than lease a car. When you lease a car, you never own a car, you rent a car. That's exactly what it is. It's an auto rental. That's what you're doing. It's a long-term rental. And you'll never own a car. At least when you buy a used car, at some point, if you're smart, you're going to pay off the loan. And this is the next thing that you need to do when you pay off a loan in a car. You keep the car until it won't drive anymore, until it costs more to keep it than it does to get another one. And that's what Americans don't do. You know, as soon as our payments are over, we want to go turn it in and get a new car. Or even before the payments are over. You know, these dealerships, uh, they don't care if you still have money owed on the original car. They'll work it out in the deal. So uh, buying from liquidators is, is the way to go. Buying it, hey, look, how do you finance it? Best way to do it is cash. If you could afford to pay it and pay no interest on the car, good for you. You have no car payments. And just think about it. How much are you actually paying for a car when you have a car loan at 8% or 10% for six or seven years? You're not paying 44000 for that car. You're paying 75000 or greater for that car when you take all the interest into consideration. So it's always, always, always good if you have the ability to pay cash for a car. The second thing to do is look at financing. Sometimes you're able to get really good financing. Remember 0% financing or 1.9% financing? I wouldn't use my cash to buy the car if I can get 0% financing. It's free money. Yeah, I'll have a car payment to pay, but no interest. And I could take the cash that I was going to buy the car with and invest it and get a return on it. So always take the 0% financing, even if you could pay cash for the vehicle or 1.9 or a very low financing. And as I said earlier, right now, if you finance a, a new car, it's going to be 8 to 10%. You finance a used car, it's going to be more than that. So how you finance the car is very, very important. And then how long you keep the car is very important. And I know people, you know, they always want the newest, the greatest, the new technology in cars. But, you know, the cost of cars are so high right now. 
And when I when I interview a, a couple, they come in, they want to do retirement planning. They come in in their mid fifties, and they've done hardly any. And they say, "Well, you know, we make good money, but you know, we just don't know where it goes, and we we can't put money away for retirement." Well, let's look at your house and let's look at your cars, and that'll tell you a lot about your financial situation. Because if you have a a home that you're paying thirty five hundred a month mortgage on, and property taxes, and then you have two car payments of four or five hundred each. You have to earn like seventy five thousand pre tax just to pay for your home, and just to pay for your car, which doesn't leave a whole lot of money extra for groceries, for insurance, for savings, and everything else that uh, makes up the cost of living. Now, um, I wouldn't buy used cars from new car dealers because you probably pay more than if you went through a liquidator. I mean, used cars are our profit centers for uh, for dealers, new car dealers, and they make a profit on every vehicle that they sell. And they usually will not sell it below book value. As a matter of fact, they're going to sell it above book value. Um I would only buy a car from a new car dealer if I couldn't find a car I wanted at a liquidator. Now, used car dealers may be the worst places to buy late model used cars. I mean, used car dealers derive all their income from selling used cars. They charge the highest uh, prices, and the condition of their cars may not be reliable. Many used car dealers run small operations and are, are legendary for their questionable sales practices. At any time, they can close shop and, and, and leave you with little recourse if the, the car turns out to be a lemon. Uh, I would never buy a car from a used car salesman. Uh, but worse than that is buying a car from a private seller. Because you don't know what problems that car has. And if it turns out that there's problems with that car, you have little recourse when you buy it from an individual. Now, if you're going to do it, if you're going to buy a used car from anybody, um, I would have it checked. Not so much the the liquidators because they do their own in-house checking and they're certified cars. But if you go to a used car dealer, I certainly want my mechanic to look at it. Uh, And if I'm buying private... uh, Certainly, I'm going to want that to be looked at as well. So cars are uh, the second most expensive thing that we buy, for the most part, second only to our homes. But I tell you, it's just amazing how many Americans, how many American families have two cars in the driveway, two car payments that are perpetual because they never allow the loan to go to zero. Once it does go to zero, they go out and they buy a new car. And that's the recipe for financial disaster. So cars and homes, um, big issues. If you do it right, you're going to be financially successful. You're going to be able to build net worth, build wealth. If you do it poorly by buying too much house, by buying new cars all the time and financing them the wrong way, it's going to affect your financial health. All right, let's take a short break. My name is Lou Skatigna. You're listening to The Financial Physician 
Don't go away. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no-obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin & Company, member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through Argentus Advisors. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Do you want to communicate with me? Well, it's real easy. All you have to do is send me an email, and that's uh, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I promise to answer each and every email. If I don't, then just send it again. It may have made it to my junk folder or I just missed it. As you know, we all get millions of crazy junk emails every day. It's not even worth checking your email because you have to wade through so much junk to get to anything that's important. But anyway, just send it and uh, more often than not, I'll see it and, and I'll respond. If you have something I could help you with, you have a personal finance question, a tax question, a state planning question, uh, I'm here to help you. If you want me to cover something on the program, many of you uh, make suggestions. You, you want to know more about a subject, uh, bring it to my attention. I'm more than happy to give you what you want on this program. Uh, that's Lou at the financial, uh, physician.com. All right, so it's official. If you're on Social Security, the government announced that you will see a 3.2% increase in your Social Security benefits and uh, SSI payments in 2024, which is exactly what I was telling you it was going to be. Uh, for the last couple of months, uh, economists were, were looking at the inflation data and uh, pretty much can determine what the increase will be. Now, this is a lot less, obviously, than last year's increase, which was 9% plus, um, but still 3.2%. It's an increase nonetheless. Uh, but certainly, uh, Social Security increases does not keep pace with senior inflation, and we all know that. So 71 million Americans is going to see a 3.2% increase. It's going to average about $50 per month. Um, some people get more, some people get less based on how much you get now. Uh, obviously, 3.2% of three grand is a lot more than 3.2% of 1,000, right? So uh, people get the most Social Security are going to benefit the most by it. Now, one thing we don't know yet is what the increase, if any, in uh, Medicare Part B premiums are going to be because that's going to eat into that Social Security increase. Now, they can't raise it any more than the increase itself, 
but uh, we'll see what it is. I don't expect uh, Medicare Part B to go up a lot, but it can go up $15, $20 a month, uh, which would certainly eat into that cost of living adjustment. Now, it's important that you get cost of living adjustments because inflation now uh, is here to stay. I I don't think we're going to see inflation disappear. I I think the days of very low inflation uh, are over. And this week, uh, the Consumer Price Index was announced. Uh, It was a little stronger than expected, up 3.7% from a year ago uh, and up four-tenths of 1% month over a month. Now, if you believe that in one year that the cost of goods and services has only gone up 3.7%, well, I have a bridge to sell you uh, in lower Manhattan. Uh, There's no way in the last year inflation's only run 3.7%. This is, again, one of those government numbers that are fudged all the time and expected to continually be fudged, certainly going into an election year, just like the job numbers and the unemployment rate. Uh, These are all rig numbers to make the administration and make Bidenomics look better uh, than it really is. Uh, And if we look at, you know, things that we we use and we need, I mean, housing inflation. uh, Housing inflation is up 7.2% year over year. It's called the index for shelter. Uh, And it makes up about one third of the CPI index. No, it was up six tenths of one percent for the month and seven point two percent from a year ago. So we're seeing the cost of living somewhere. Talk about the cost of living uh, is up seven point two percent for housing alone. And then when we look at food costs, those are certainly higher than the three point seven percent year over year CPI. So everybody knows it. Everybody's feeling it. And of course, you know. Uh, Wages are not keeping uh, pace with inflation. So inflation running four-tenths for the month. I think uh, wages were up two-tenths of a month for the month. So you lost two-tenths of 1% in purchasing power last month. Now, uh, will the Federal Reserve look at this figure and say, well, you know, inflation, or at least the rate of inflation, is coming down officially by the government? You would think that they would know better. Um, But now the markets are believing that there's only a small chance that the Federal Reserve is going to hike rates again before the end of the year. And many economists are coming out and saying that next year we're going to see about three quarters to one percent decrease in interest rates. But nobody knows. Uh, We live in a volatile world right now. Obviously, we're going to touch on um, uh, the war in the Middle East, uh, which now looks like it's going to be the real thing. Uh, full-fledged war, and uh, I have major concerns about it. Uh, but the earth, uh, the world, is uh, getting crazier by the day. And just when you thought um, we couldn't use another disruption or instability in the geopolitical environment, um, we have this war in the Middle East, which is just horrible. And uh, the loss of innocent life is just dreadful on both sides. And we'll dive into that and we'll talk about how that, what's that mean for the economy? What's that mean for financial markets? What does it mean for inflation? What does it mean for security here in the United States? We'll talk about that probably in the second hour. Now, I just mentioned to you inflation, the government says, is only 3.7% year over year. You could at least double that, according to Shadow Stats and John Williams, the economist who figures out inflation like we used to figure it out. 
in the 80s, the last time we had a big inflation run, he says it's double digits. It's not 3.7%. And I believe him. And he also says unemployment's closer to 20%, not 3.8%. But uh, this week, uh, University of Michigan uh, inflation expectations soared in preliminary October data. With the year-ahead inflation expectations uh, rising uh, from 3.2% last month to people are expecting 3.8% this month, which is the highest level since uh, May. So people are expecting inflation to stay high or go even higher. And 49% of consumers reported that high prices are eroding their living standards, up substantially from 39% just last month. And matching the all-time high last recorded last July, uh, July of 2022. So uh, consumers are feeling the pinch. Their wages are not rising enough to cover the increase in prices. So therefore, our standard of living is dropping. There's a lot of fear in, 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 in households now uh, that they just can't make ends meet. They're having to borrow more and more money. They're having to cut back on spending, especially on essentials like groceries. Uh, It's a very tough time out there. But, you know, Bidenomics is working. It's doing so well for us. At least that's what KJP, Corinne Jean-Pierre, says. So she's she's doing her um, press briefing uh, when uh, after the CPI came out. She's asked a question about it. And, of course, she spins at, uh, Bidenomics as if everything is going so great. Uh, so I want to talk about CPI inflation. The CPI inflation report came out today. It was hotter than expected, 3.7% year over year, unchanged from the prior month. You talk about all the spending last year to lower costs. Um, the last couple of months, how is that lowering costs? So, uh, look... What we believe is that Bionomics is an action, right? You're talking about lowering costs, right? And that's something that the president is certainly continuing to do. Inflation is falling while uh, uh, while employment remains strong. As you speak to CPI, inflation has fallen 60% uh, since last summer. And the core inflation, as, we, as you're speaking to this data, fell to its lowest level in two years. And so that matters. Let's not forget about wages are higher than they were last year, accounting for inflation. Prices fell for uh, core goods like cars and furniture for the fourth month in a row. All of those pieces are in the data, the CPI uh, that came out today, and that matters. But people still hear by and they see rent is up 7.4% year over year. Car repairs, car insurance is up almost 19%. So costs are not coming down for all Americans. So here's the thing. Um, as we know that when it comes to housing, people are still dealing with a lot, right? We understand how that that economic hardship as it relates to housing specifically. That's why the president put forth a plan to deal with, on the federal level, how to uh, help people lower costs with housing. So that is important as well. Uh, but when you think about wages, wages are indeed up, which matters, uh, over la- the last year, accounting for inflation, and even more for blue-collar workers and those not uh, in management. So that matters, as I mentioned, as I mentioned moments ago. So look, the president's going to continue to grow the economy. 
we talk about binomics. We see the economy growing. We see unemployment at under 4%. We see uh, jobs created under this administration as more than 13 million jobs, more than 14 million jobs at this point. And that's what that's what we're going to focus on. When it comes to Republicans, they want to slash taxes for the wealthy. That's what they want to do. That's what they're putting forward. Cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut Medicaid. They already started talking about that again recently. So the president's going to focus on what is, what is needed for the American people to continue to give them that little bit of breathing room. And that's what the president's going to focus on. Let's not forget yesterday. She just comes out and straight out lies to you. The first thing she said is wages have gone up over the last year, counting inflation, more than inflation. That's total lie. It's not true. She knows it, but she said it anyway. She goes on to say that the the president is very focused uh, on the economy. The president isn't focused on anything. The president doesn't do anything, doesn't know where he is, doesn't come to work most of the time, but he's focused on the economy. Oh, he's created 14 million jobs since he came in. Those were just people going back to the work after the lockdown. He didn't create no jobs. It's just unbelievable that she... Um, she shifts gears into, well, the Republicans, they just want to uh, lower taxes for the rich. Uh, they want to cut Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. It's the same old story. Every single election cycle, it's the same exact playbook by the Democrats. It's just unbelievable. Uh, one group uh, of people who aren't very happy these days are people who have to pay their student loans back uh, after more than a three-year pause, government student loan repayment started again this month, and it's already putting a squeeze uh, on borrowers' budgets. And this is bad news for the economy um, that's already dealing with massive levels of debt, rising interest rates, and inflation. And now uh, families and students um, have to pay their student loans back. Well, you knew that when you went into it. According to a recent survey reported by Yahoo Finance, about 40% of people with student loans expect to cut spending in order to make payments. Consumers planning to tighten their belts to cover student loan payments said they would likely cut back spending on restaurants, apparel, and electronics. A separate Morgan Stanley survey found that only 24% of student borrowers can make monthly student loan payments in full without reducing spending. And that's down from 29% just three months ago, indicating growing financial stress on consumers. So, uh, you know, the average they say here is somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, $200 and $300 per month. And uh, that means that 43 million Americans just had their discretionary spending budget cut by at least that amount. So that's amount that's not going to be spent elsewhere. And that comes to about $120 billion a year that won't be used to purchase products or services or travel or restaurants. That's a lot of money. And just realize the consumer is 70% of the economy. So how much uh, student loan debt is out there? Well, as I said, 43 million Americans have student loans and they total $1.8 trillion, according from the most recent uh, data from the Federal Reserve. Outstanding student loan has tripled since 2008. And part of that is because colleges have just continued to raise 
tuitions and room and board at levels way above the inflation rate. And, you know, students just kept borrowing because the government guarantees these loans. They're easy to get. And uh, people don't realize that someday they got to pay these back. And there's some indications already that retailers are, are feeling the effects of the student loan repayment. Macy's reported a 36% reduction in credit card sales year on year in the second quarter. Nordstrom uh, reported a similar trend. So people are not going out and spending money as much. They realize that now they have to divert a significant part of their salary to repaying their student loans. And that's another reason why I believe uh, a recession is, if not here already, is coming very, very soon. For the last few months, I've been talking about uh, central bank digital currencies, what they are, how they can control you, uh, if they're coming or not, uh, which they are, and digital money, particularly CBDCs, give the, the government the potential anyway through the central bank to see every purchase and transfer you make in real time. And not just see, but control. Now, of course, the governments in the West, they say that central bank money in digital form is convenient, it's safe, it's stable. They promise that they'll never use it as an instrument of control, as a, an authoritarian government would. Um, but they will. You know that. They will. If they can, you know, we just uh, live through uh, lockdowns. Uh, we live through government control of everything we do. And uh, now they want to do it with your money and control you there, too. Now, the Chinese government has been testing uh, this for a long time. And what they do now is they put exp- expiration dates on deposits into your digital account. And you have to spend the money quickly. And they're doing this uh, in times when the economy needs stimulus. So they'll give you this digital money, put it in your account, but you got to spend it in two weeks. And sometimes you have to spend it on on something specific or a specific industry or a specific product. Uh, So it's already being trialed here. And what if the United States wanted to do that? They wanted to stimulate the, I don't know, auto industry. So they put $5,000 of digital coins in your account. It expires in two months, and it can only be used for the down payment of a car. And uh, then there's the thing of uh, social credit system. By analyzing your spending patterns, they can give you a social credit score. And if your score isn't right, you can't purchase things, you can't travel, you can't get a job. Maybe you can't even use your digital currency at that point. And uh, maybe if you don't agree with everything the government says, it hurts your score. So the government will either reward or, or they'll punish Various forms of behavior. Uh, 
using real-time monitoring and artificial intelligence and data gathering. They'll make blacklists, red lists. They'll use punishment, sanctions, and rewards to control you and influence your behavior. A report in 2019 found that 23 million people in China have been blacklisted from traveling by plane or train due to their low credit score. Some students are denied access to a university because of something their family is doing. Their father has big debt. Uh, and there's no, in China, there's no central uh, transparent set of rules. You, know, you don't know what the rules are. It, it's very local. And it's been reported that behavior such as poor driving, spending too long playing video games, uh, posting quote-unquote fake news or disinformation on the internet. Uh, and these are just, you know, mild infractions. Well, try to talk about, uh, talk against uh, President Xi in China. See what that does to your social credit score. Um, so uh, they can control everything. And they can do it here. Uh, even, it's already started here. I mean, MasterCard in 2019 launched a credit card with a, a carbon footprint calculator that can switch off your spending when you reach your carbon maximum. Now, this functionality is voluntary. You know, you have to volunteer for, uh, volunteer for this. Why would you? I don't know. But it could be an automatic part of, of a, a, a central bank digital currency where, say, you um, you buy too much gasoline. You're driving too much. Your carbon footprint's too high. Your digital currency uh, debit card won't work after you spend $100 a month on gasoline. You see how this can work? It's kind of like uh, your kids come home from school and you give them your kids some some pocket money. But you program the money so they, they can't go to the store and buy sweets with it. And that's exactly what they could do with programmable digital currency. Now, um, CBDCs won't just, you know, affect our relationship with money, but with government. I mean, governments around the world have shown authoritarian tendencies during the management of the COVID pandemic, right? And now, what are they doing now? They're trying to discourage driving in cities with a congestion tax. See, you could be controlled with money. Money is a very, very strong um, instrument of control. Do we want to negotiate with the daddy state to be allowed to spend our pocket money the way we want to, the way we wish? And, and the average person just has no idea how much government power, enormous amount of government power over your money, and your identity is connected to your money. It's just uh, Orwellian. 
And again, the thing that I'm worried about more than anything is going to be uh, political. If they don't like your political, you have a blog and you post things that are against uh, the left in this country, you will be punished. Now, maybe in the beginning, it's just money-wise where your money's turned off or they confiscate your bank account or they charge you a, uh, a disinformation tax or a fine. You can call it whatever you want. That automatically comes out of your bank account. No due process, nothing. Having control of your money is freedom. So if it's weaponized where the government can see how you spend it, well, that's financial tyranny. And uh, this is something that I am so against. But it looks like, uh, what, 120 countries around the world want to do this? All it is is a boot on your neck. And it's a way to control. It's one step towards the world, one world currency, one world government, the Great Reset. And uh, just as recently, J.P. Morgan debuts tokenization platform. The tokenization, uh, tokenized collateral network enables the conversion of traditional assets into digital assets and makes way for faster and more secure on-chain settlements. United States banking giant J.P. Morgan, Chase, debuted its in-house blockchain-based tokenization application, TCN, on October 11th. So it was just a couple of days ago. TCN settled its first trade for asset management giant BlackRock. The tokenization, the tokenized collateral network is an application that allows investors to utilize assets as collateral. Using blockchain technologies, investors can transfer collateral ownership without moving assets and underlying ledgers. So it's just a way now, now it's not digital currency, so to speak, uh, but it's the same thing. It's using blockchain, it's using uh, ledgers uh, to transfer securities and collateral uh, between financial houses. But it's just a start. Soon they're going to use blockchain to settle trades, uh, and then they're going to roll out this digital currency. Maybe we need to take our money out of the system while we still can, get cash out of our bank accounts in a way that doesn't get us in trouble, and go buy gold coins with it, silver coins with it. That's the only privacy you're going to have in financial transactions is paying people with, with gold or silver. And a lot of people, you know, are saying, well, you know, sooner or later, you're going to want to sell that gold or silver and you're going to wind up with digital currency, right? You're going to be right back in the system. And that's true. But if you can get excess cash, you know, you have your life savings in a bank account and you don't need it all right away, maybe converting it into precious metals would make a lot of sense. They can't, they can't confiscate, they can't charge negative interest rates on gold or assets that are not in the digital space. Um, maybe that's a thing to do. Well, I saw something on Friday that I, I have I can't remember seeing in a long time. If ever, actually. I've been watching gold for 25 years. I watch the market every day. 
And on Friday, an ounce of gold was up $60. Uh, and an ounce of silver, almost a dollar up. Uh, as people are starting to look at gold and silver as a safe haven, uh, given the outbreak of war in the Middle East. Uh, and, and and that's the thing. Gold and silver have always been the place to turn to uh, when you fear upheaval, Un- you know, uh, unsettled uh, financial markets, inflation. And boy, the world is more unstable now than it's been since World War II. And uh, we're going to dive into it, you know, in the beginning of the second hour, what's going on. I truly believe that we're watching the beginnings of World War III. So it wasn't to Ukraine. That was not the beginning of World War III. This is going to be, in my opinion, a global war. And I'll tell you why uh, in the second hour. Uh, but yeah, I mean, people are looking at gold and silver as a, uh, as a safe haven right now. But I'm looking at it more as a way to protect my wealth from these CBDCs, whatever they call them. Central Bank Digital, yes, CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currency. Uh, and uh, this is so insidious, I'm telling you. Uh, I know what their plan is here. It's so, so Orwellian. It's so authoritative. It's so tyrannical. And that's where we're going. I mean, our country is turning into a tyrannical, authoritative um, state. And uh, and in the midst of a, a Marxist leftist takeover of America, which I laid out to you last week. Uh, truly frightening times. And, you know, we feel it. We all feel it. Uh, I, I, I see people every day in my practice, and they bring it up when we're talking about investments and volatility and things like that. They bring it up. Lou, I'm concerned about what's happening in the world. Lou, I'm concerned what's happening here in the United States politically. I fear there may be a time that I can't speak up. I mean, you know, we've been doing this program for 25 years almost. Uh, and I've felt free to speak my mind on almost any subject. Am I going to have to think twice? I mean, I've already been banned from YouTube for life. For what? For questioning uh, the validity of the 2020 election and for questioning the safety and efficacy of the shot. And I'm right on both counts, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's disinformation um, because it doesn't fit the narrative of the left or the narrative of this government. And that should scare all of us because censorship is the beginning of tyranny because truth is the enemy of tyranny. And you'll see in any Marxist takeover of a country going back in history, what's the first thing they do is they quell free speech and they punish the dissidents, dissident speech that's against the government. And that's exactly what we're starting to see now. Now, you could be labeled by the, the, the FBI as a domestic terrorist because on a website or a blog or Twitter, you write that you, uh, you're a MAGA Republican. You take a picture with a MAGA hat on. You're now considered a domestic terrorist. That maybe you have to be surveilled. Maybe every one of your emails is being read. 
Maybe even the microphone on your phone or your computer is turned on. I don't know. I, I Nothing would surprise me these days. And then, now they want to control your money. And, I get, and once they control your money through digital currencies, you're done. Because they got you at that point. You know that if you speak up the wrong way, you give money to the wrong causes, the wrong political candidates, that you're going to be punished. Maybe initially just financially. Uh, but then what? See, it's all incremental. It's little by little by little, then all at once. That's the way things change in a big way. Little by little by little, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and then all at, all at once, it's gone. And I think that's what's happening with civil liberties in this country, the right to free speech. You know they're coming after your guns because that's the second thing they do. First thing they got to do is control speech and censor what they don't want. And the second thing they need to do is disarm the public. And they're going to find ways. They're, they're chipping away at it, chipping away. Then all of a sudden, right? I like to see how that plays out. What are they going to do? Go door to door and take your guns? That's going to be a pretty, pretty bloody event, I would think. Because not everybody's just going to hand them over to a tyrannical government. But this is what I'm watching. This is what I read every day. Uh, this is what keeps me up at night. Maybe I'm too immersed in it. Maybe I read too much alt websites, conspiratorial websites. Um, I don't know. But I got to tell you, it's, um, it's on my mind all the time. And not necessarily for myself. I'm 63 years old. I'm worried more about my kids and grandkids and what kind of world that they're going to live in. But it's not going to be a better world than we lived in in the past. I can tell you that in many, many different ways. All right, mortgage rates continue to move higher each and every week. Um, we're getting closer and closer to 8% 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Uh, fixed-rate mortgages, the national average this week is over 7.5%, uh, and it looks like it's going to continue. I think we may see an 8% mortgage at some point along the line here, maybe sooner rather than later, uh, due to uh, um, recent uh, geopolitical events. We're seeing a, a flight to safety where money is looking for a home, at least short term, uh, and some of that uh, is being funneled into gold. Uh, a lot of that money is being uh, funneled into U.S. Treasuries, uh, we're seeing the yield on the 10-year um, Treasury bond right now at 4.632. Uh, that's down from last week. Uh, it, it, it hit 5% a couple of weeks ago. So 4.62 is a, a bit of a retreat in interest rates as money around the world is looking for a safe haven. Um, so that should ease um, mortgages for a little while here. Uh, and... The Fed came out this week. Uh, some Fed governors came out this week indicating that uh, maybe they've gone far enough with interest rates uh, that they may not need to increase them anymore. If that's the case, we may have seen the peak, uh, at least short term, uh, in the 10-year Treasury, which uh, 
30-year mortgage rates are derived from. So my guess is next week we'll we'll see the the 30-year treasury uh, 30-year um, fixed rate mortgage uh, interest rate drop from seven and a half, probably down to about seven and seven and a quarter, seven point three percent. But it's all going to hinge on uh, the daily movements uh, in a ten-year treasury, uh, a ten-year treasury bond. And again, that's going to be dictated by uh, things that the Fed says, as well as um, geopolitical events overseas. Now, many of us fear the IRS, and um, whenever we get a notice from the IRS, we go to the mailbox, we go through our mail, and we see an envelope from the IRS. So what happens? Your heart starts pumping. Your blood pressure starts rising. Oh, my God, what is this? And typically, you don't go in a house and open it. You open it right there at the mailbox. At least I do when I get something like that. What is this? Uh, and uh, it could be nothing. It could just say you owe a little bit of money, you underpaid your taxes, you got a little bit of a penalty here. But imagine getting a bill from the IRS saying that you owe $28.9 billion in back taxes. Well, that's what happened to Microsoft this week. The company said it received uh, notices from the IRS seeking additional payment of $28.9 billion plus penalties and interest for the tax years 2004 to 2013. The payments stem from disagreements over the tax treatment of intercompany transfer pricing, a well-known corporate tax black hole. Now, I have no idea what that means. Uh, it was not immediately clear if these notices suggested that the company had underpaid taxes on purpose. Or maybe there was just a glitch in TurboTax. Maybe there was just a, the accountant made a mistake. Who knows? But whatever the reason, $29 billion is a lot of money. Even for uh, Epstein Island regulars like uh, Bill Gates, maybe. So naturally, Microsoft says it disagrees with the notices and um, will vigorously contest them and does not expect a final resolution on these issues in the next 12 months. <laughs> That's quite a bit of money, even for a company like Microsoft. Uh, and keep in mind, the, the rest of us, it's all relative, right? Uh, uh, but uh, right now, uh, the IRS now has... Uh, Thousands of newly weaponized, literally weaponized, they have guns, tax collectors. And they're starting to go after these big tech companies because they have all the money. And they're going to look at them to try to go after the um, U.S. deficit, uh, which is just expanding by the second. Um, You ever watch the debt clock and just watch the numbers go by? It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable how much the debt grows second by second by second. So uh, my guess is that Microsoft uh, is probably the first, but certainly won't be the last gigantic um, company uh, to have to pay ransom to the IRS. Um, but that's a that's a bill you don't want to get in the mail. <laughs> I don't care who you are. Uh, $28.9 billion. To you and me, it's probably the equivalent of $15,000. Uh, but still uh, disturbing, <laughs> very disturbing. 
All right, a Rasmussen poll conducted from October 2nd through the 4th shows a widening lead for President Trump in the 2024 election. The poll revealed that 38% of voters are very likely to vote for President Trump and 15% somewhat likely for a total of 53%. But the shocking numbers from the poll show that President Trump is really breaking down barriers that traditionally were Democratic and would never go to Republican candidates. Listen to this. This is pretty shocking. Uh, I'm not shocked by it, actually, to be honest with you. Uh, 30% of Democrats are at least somewhat likely to vote Trump, with 19% very likely. By comparison, President Trump only received 5% of Democratic votes in 2016. I mean, 30% of Democrats are going to vote for Trump? I mean, that's a landslide. That is a landslide victory. I don't even think they could cheat enough to even come close to rigging this election. Uh, And it gets worse for the Democrats. The poll revealed 55% support amongst voters aged 18 to 39. Now, this is usually a a very difficult demographic for Republican candidates. 54% support among 40 to 64-year-olds and voters 65 and up come in at 47%. What's wrong with you seniors? Then only 47% back Trump. Why is that age group uh, the one that has the least support? Very interesting. But that's not the most shocking number. The most shocking number is the black vote, with 50% at least somewhat likely to vote President Trump and only 46 not likely at all. In 2020, Biden won 87% of the black vote. I think it's, this is shocking. 50% of the black vote is going to go to Trump? That, 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 that's amazing to me. And he probably won't get 50%, but if he gets 30, again, this is a, a landslide. Uh, choice of vice president, uh, most people said it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make a difference. But uh, I find this poll... Uh, if this poll is true, and I, and, and I have to believe it is, um, the Democrats know this as well. Uh, what do they do about it? They can't go into the election with these numbers like that. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's no contest at that point. Trump will win every state. And, uh, and I think those numbers are correct. So what are they going to do? Uh, get rid of Biden. I think I already told you, I think that's going to happen. I think that's a no-brainer. No pun intended. <laughs> it was a pretty good one, Lou. Uh, a no-brainer, get rid of get rid of Biden. And uh, who they bring in, that'll probably change the number somewhat because nobody wants a senile president, especially now what's going on in the Middle East. We need leadership now. If we're going to be entering World War III, um, I don't want a senile man that doesn't know where he is uh, to be leading our country. I, that's not my war president. I'd rather have Trump at the helm. No question about it. Not even close. Uh, so if they brought somebody in that's not senile, it probably skewed the numbers a little bit. 
so they know they have to replace him or they have to make sure there's no election at all. And more and more people, political pundits and people that, that I like and I follow, believe that they're going to find a reason not to have an election next year if they know they're going to lose. That the left have come too far the last three years in destroying America and taking over the country. Their revolution is not done. And they will not allow Trump back into power. And they'll do everything they can, including God knows what, to prevent an election from happening. But if uh, you're a Trump supporter uh, and are sick of this wokeness, fearful for what's going on in the world, uh, you're happy to hear that poll. I know we have such negative news uh, out there, and I'm in, I, I shower in it almost every day, meaning that I'm so immersed in current events. I'm always researching. I'm always reading, not the mainstream media. Uh, and it's depressing. There's no good news out there. There's nothing but really bad news. So uh, that news that uh, Trump now has uh, 30% of Democrats and 50% of blacks likely to vote for him, uh, I find that to be good news. All right, on the other side of the break, we're going to break down what's going on in the Middle East, uh, and I'm going to give you my opinion on it. And uh, it's more serious than I think most people realize. Uh, and not only for Israel uh, and Hamas, it's got worldwide implications. And I'll explain it to you right after the break. Don't go away. AFM Investments' Lou Skatigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company. Member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through our Advisors. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. Want to get in touch with me? Very simple. Just send me an email at lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Lou, L-O-U, at thefinancialphysician.com. You got a comment on the program, something you want me to cover, or a personal finance issue, or problem of any kind that you think I may be able to steer you in the right direction, please send me an email. Love your emails, and I respond to each and every one. 
And just a reminder, we don't only have one podcast on Sunday. We have two podcasts, and most of you are listening to both shows, uh, probably about 70%. So we still have 30% of you who are listening on Sunday, but you're not joining us for my midweek podcast that, that I put up at 4 o'clock, at, at least by 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. It runs about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, but I cover things on the midweek podcast that I don't repeat here on this show. So if you missed the midweek podcast, just go to thefinancialphysician.com and we'll have a link there for you. All right, so I haven't uh, talked about uh, the Mideast war yet, the war between Israel and uh, Hamas, and uh, soon to be, I think, the entire Arab world. Uh, I knew about it when I was taping last Sunday's show. The news had just come out, and I didn't feel it was proper for me to comment on it because they just haven't put my thoughts together, and I haven't done enough research on it, didn't know enough, uh, and we didn't have a midweek podcast this week because I was... I was away in Boston. So um, we're going to touch on it now, and we're going to dive deep into it because it is serious. Uh, just when you thought the world could not become more unstable, uh, we have another potential World War III on our hands here. And I think the potential for World War III is more in the Middle East than it is in Ukraine. I think it's obvious that um, Ukraine, Russia is not going to be defeated there. Uh, and sooner or later, it, the West has to come to the conclusion, as does Zelensky and Ukraine themselves, uh, that this is an unwinnable war right now. And how many people have to die in Ukraine? Uh, and, and now the world's attention now is turning towards the Middle East. Uh, the most unhappy person, I shouldn't say the most unhappy person, I'm sure the parents of people who, who were lost in Israel are the most unhappy people. But one person who wasn't happy to hear the news out of the Middle East, is uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine. Because now it looks like his gravy train is finally going to be pulled away. And uh, we're going to look at at a more serious issue now in the Middle East, and now we're going to have to fund them as well. So I think that uh, the powers that be, whoever they are, are going to realize that uh, the the main affair now is going to be in the Middle East, and we can't... um, go too thin, can't stretch ourselves too thin with two fronts, uh, and I think there'll be pressure put on Ukraine to sue for peace, which is what Russia wanted anyway from the beginning, is eastern Ukraine, the Russian-speaking area there, and I think they're going to get it. Uh, I just think that what's going on in the Middle East is just too serious right now, and we can't, we can't uh, fight two fronts. As a matter of fact, we already depleted all our military assets in Ukraine. Uh, We don't have enough to defend ourselves now. Uh, And uh, we may very well have to defend ourselves pretty soon, and I'll explain why in a second. But uh, on uh, early hours of Saturday morning last week, uh, Hamas broke through the border fence in something like 20 different places. Uh, Apparently, the Israelis had no intelligence about this happening, which I find very hard to believe. We'll dive into that in a little bit. So they came across the border. They came through hang gliders with little motors on them. Uh, they, they bust through the fence a number of places. Uh, they came in, massacred a, a music festival with a b- bunch of young people. I think 260 of them were killed. Uh, I'm sure you saw some of the video of that. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. 
what are they doing having a festival literally yards away from the Gaza Strip? I don't know. I guess that's life in, in Israel. But uh, they came in and they massacred children, elderly, women were raped, hostages were taken. I mean, just a truly barbaric, evil act that should be condemned. But not everybody's condemning it, as you'll see in the second. And uh, now Israel is going to retaliate and bring down hell on the Gaza Strip. Now, the question is, what does other actors in the Middle East do? And you really need to know the, the complicated politics in the Arab world. You know, Israel was moving very, very close to a, a peace treaty, a, a deal with Saudi Arabia. They already have, uh, Trump was uh, the one responsible for the Abraham Accords, where Israel was making peace with, with other Arab nations, including the uh, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, other Arab countries. Uh, and they were very, very close with Saudi Arabia. Now, this happens, and it's going to put that on the back burner, because Saudi Arabia can't jump into a deal with Israel right now. And the, the question now is, how does this unfold? This is not going to be a short-term war. This is not just an incursion. I mean, this is outright war. And what's amazing about it, it's almost 50 years to the day. In 1973, October 7th, the Yom Kippur War. And I remember it. I was 13 years old. I remember it. I was a political junkie as a young kid. And, and I followed all this stuff. I was a news junkie. So I remember it. Uh, this may be worse. Uh, this will be worse, in my opinion. And what you need to know is that it's just not Hamas. I mean, who's funding them? Well, it's Iran, of course. And uh, ironically, uh, our president, on the anniversary of 9-11, made available to Iran $6 billion in exchange for five hostages that they've been holding. That doesn't encourage hostage-taking, does it? Oh, it's over a billion dollars per hostage. I want to take some hostages. I'm only kidding. I'll have a knock on my door tomorrow. Uh, but it seems that taking hostages pays. Maybe that's why Hamas did it. So now we have two aircraft carrier battle groups uh, off the shore of Israel. Are we going to get involved? And if we get involved, who gets involved on the Arab side? And does the United States then become a target? I hope we don't get involved. I hope it doesn't come down to that. But it's a proxy war, just like the Ukraine war is. It's U.S. versus Russia. This will be the U.S. versus Iran, and maybe Russia, and maybe China. So this really has the ingredients of World War III. And it's, it's not going to end well. You know, Albert Einstein, very smart man, right? Brilliant man, knew a thing or two about the atomic bomb. And he said, when World War III happens, given the weapons that we have, the one thing he knew for sure is World War IV would, would be fought with sticks and rocks, is what he said, sticks and rocks. That's how devastated the world would be. And it looks like nobody talks peace. It's just amazing how, you see, you, you can't even get on a news show. If you want peace in Ukraine, if you think that there should be peace in the Middle East, 
But what just happened in Israel, it's, it's stunning, it's shocking, it's sickening. And I feel so bad for uh, the Jewish people in Israel that they have to live through this now. And uh, right now, uh, Netanyahu says anything goes, no mercy. And unfortunately, a lot of innocent people are going to pay for it with their lives, with, with economic dislocation. I mean, look what's happening in the Gaza Strip now, the destruction there. These people are already poor for the most part. But that has to be done. I mean, this could not be, this is not a tit for tat. There's no moral equivalence here. And uh, Israel has to do what it has to do. Now, um, the news media, uh, it depends what you're listening to. I mean, you listen to MSNBC, you're seeing moral equivalency of this. That uh, Israel should not hit back uh, asymmetrically, meaning that it should be equal to what happened to them. Now, Andrea Mitchell, MSNBC lefty, quote-unquote journalist, um, uh, was interviewing a mother of someone who's been taking hostage. Actually, she has two children that have been taken hostage. And she had the gall to ask her about uh, how she feels about what Israel is doing to Gaza right now. First of all, you don't ask a mother whose kids have just been kidnapped by Hamas and try to get her to answer the question as if she's upset about it. And this is the way it went. What are your feelings about the the, the attacks against Gaza right now? Um, how can I the must government... Say, uh, look, you, you're looking for, for a symmetrical situation, and I must say, it isn't. Um, if you were dealing with a, a war who is between two countries. Countries don't take children hostages, I'm sorry. It's against the laws of war. It's against humanity. It's against anything that we all believe in. Every time we had missiles uh, shot at us, I used to say to my children that they should be sympathetic towards the children of Gaza because they suffer a lot more than they do. I'm not sure I still believe in it now. And I must say, the only worry I have now from... uh, the bombings in Gaza is the fact that my children are there. I can't be sympathetic anymore. I can't be sympathetic to animal human beings. Well, they're not really human beings who came into my house, broke everything, stole everything, took my children from their bedrooms and took them to the Gaza Strip. Israel never done that and will never do. So there is no symmetry. I'm sorry. Do you want the I'm government? Sorry, do you want the government to put the, the top priority on getting the hostages out uh, before they I retaliate? Want my government to put it on the first priority, and I want the world to put it on first priority. I think any mother in the world should try and imagine her children under that situation, and then think again. That's all I want. I want the world to ask them to release children, to release elderly, to release the civilians they took 
There is no reason to hold them there. They are not soldiers, they are not part of the war, and they have nothing to do with it. We gave them work permits. We really believed that this was the way to move their economy, to, reun to, to reconnect these two so-called countries. This is not the way a country uh, behaves. This is the way that a terror organization behaves. I'm sorry. Do you want uh, getting the hostages freed to be the number one priority of your government? Uh, duh. Yes, I, stupid question to a mother whose two children are being held hostage there. I mean, talk about journalism, the death of journalism. And to ask that question of that woman um, is just ridiculous. Now, MSNBC's coverage of the, of the attack on Israel is not good. They're taking the side of the far left, naturally. And it requires them to try to take both sides of the situation. And there is no both sides. Israel was brutally attacked and is responding. That's the simple truth. And uh, here's an example of it. Andrea Mitchell asking a woman about how she feels about what's going on in Gaza right now. And look, the liberal media is bankrupt. And MSNBC's coverage of the attack exposes that. And it's, it's, why does the left always take the side of evil? Do you notice that? Whether it's abortion, it's like a religion to them. Backing up terrorists, giving them shade, giving them cover. Open borders to let everybody in. We'll talk about that in a second, how what happened in Israel is just a prelude of what's going to happen here. And uh, woke MSNBC lost 33% of its primetime audience since the um, violence broke out in Israel. And they insist on publishing a joint death toll all the time. By the way, Fox and CNN are seeing double-digit increases of viewers right now. So woke MSNBC lost 33% of its primetime. People don't want to hear their junk. They don't want to hear their garbage, their propaganda. Now, I was in um, Boston this past week for four days, four days. There was, in my hotel room, there was probably 50 channels. The only news channels available, besides local, was MSNBC and CNN. The number one news organization by far, Fox, was not available in my hotel. And that's because Boston is a liberal city. Now, while I was there, I think it was um, Wednesday. No, actually it was Tuesday. Uh, we were in Boston Comet, and there was a rally, a pro-Israeli rally in the park. Boy, there was a lot of cops there. At the same time, Across the river in Cambridge, at Harvard, 
you had rallies that were pro-Palestinian. And you had 31 student organizations release the letter of support for the Hamas killers. 31 Harvard University student groups signed a letter blaming Israel as entirely responsible for Hamas's barbaric slaughter of innocent Israelis, including 260 young adults at a concert on Saturday morning. You would think these young people would have some sympathy for people their age at a concert being mowed down and raped and kidnapped. Uh, But the Harvard students stand with those committing war crimes, shooting children in their bed, cutting off babies' heads. Over a 1,000 Jews were killed, including 20 Americans. And the youth, um, the students at Harvard support this. What a wonderful university we have there. And it's not just them, it's universities across the country. And uh, the reaction from uh, Harvard's president and so forth, the first thing, uh, didn't condemn Hamas. And then it was pushed back. The public reaction to this public letter by the Harvard students has been near universal disgust. Hedge fund billionaire Bill Ackman called on Harvard to release all the names of the students that are members of these 31 anti-Semitic campus groups. And the reason why is he wants to make sure that these young Hamas, uh, Hamas supporters are never hired by a Wall Street firm. And uh, now uh, several uh, young Harvard minds are now worried about their careers. Now, to be all fair here, uh, not every student in each of these organizations may feel that way. So if I'm part of an organization, I wasn't consulted. I had nothing to do with that letter. Uh, Should I be singled out by corporate America not to be hired? Uh, One of the students put on Twitter, I'm a Harvard law student. So I know many members had no say in whether their org signed either letter. Many weren't even notified that their orgs were considering doing so. No need for this level of harassment. So on Tuesday, um, Harvard University President Claudine Gay was forced to release a statement condemning Hamas. The pressure was too great. Oh, by the way, if you see a picture of this woman, what is it with the left? These people are not qualified to run a college She looks like she's right out of the hood. She really does. She looks like every Democratic mayor in liberal cities that had been destroyed. So uh, she was forced to release a statement condemning Hamas. She's been president for less than a year. She doesn't have the moral compass to do the job. Um, So she... uh, she said Israel, um, uh, she said Hamas was responsible for it. In uh, campuses across the country, you had protests against Israel. Uh, in uh, Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin, listen, listen to what these people are saying, these students are saying regarding Israel and Hamas. Glory to the martyrs! 
Do you know what he's saying? What he's saying? We will liberate the land! There you go. We will liberate the land by any means necessary. We will liberate the land! By any means necessary! These are American students at universities around the country. And it's got to make you think, what's going on in these universities? It's, it's just unbelievable, the culture in these universities. And parents are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for the privilege to have their children indoctrinated to this garbage. It's unbelievable. Glory to the martyrs. Glory to the people that killed babies, killed elderly, raped women, killed 260 students just having a good time at a music concert, took hostages, and God knows what's happening to them. These people are so despicable. Do you know what some of the things that they did? You want to talk about pure evil? Is they filmed an old lady, a grandma, being brutally killed, took her phone and put the video on her Facebook page. And that's how her family found out about it. Could you imagine that? Also, what they would do is they had uh, two, two girls were kidnapped, two sisters from that concert, that music festival. And they took their phone and called their mother so she could hear them screaming in the background as they were torturing them or raping them. Could you imagine that? Now, you're talking pure evil here. Now, I've told you on this program for a long time, the gates of hell have been opened. The final battle between good and evil is taking place in the world right now. I truly believe that. And right now, evil is winning. Now, I don't think evil is going to win at the end. I think God has a plan, and I think good always wins. I think God always wins, and he will. And I think Israel will win here. They have a pretty good history, a biblical history, (laughs) of winning these things not only over the last 50 to 70 years, but uh, going back thousands of years. They've had setbacks. Egypt was one. Uh, But they seem to overcome. And uh, this is going to turn into a world war. I'm pretty confident of that. Uh, It's pretty hard to turn back now. The question is, what kind of restraint do we see from other Arab countries? The Palestinians aren't particularly... Uh, looked at in in a good light for many of the the Arabs around the region. They have their own agendas, their own political issues. Um, But Iran's leading this. And here you have um, President Biden on 9-11 of all days. It's in your face. Don't you see this? It's in your face what they're doing. With the open borders and give, they couldn't wait to nine twelve to announce that they're freeing up six billion dollars to give to the Iranians. Now they say they came out and said that well, that money is locked up at Qatar, uh, not a penny's leaving yet. Uh, but I was listening to uh, who was it Kirby dancing around that issue. It's mincing words and everything else. Why not just pull the six billion and say you ain't getting it? They're funding this. Hamas is being funded as Hezbollah is by Iran. And that's the wild card in all this. What does Hezbollah do in the north? They're already starting to attack in small ways. And Israel is counterattacking. And keep in mind, you got to know this. Hezbollah is not Hamas. 
Hamas is a terrorist organization. Now, I guess you could say Hezbollah is too, but Hezbollah is well-trained and is well-equipped militarily. They have advanced weapon systems. So if they had opened up a second front to the north, uh, Israel, Israel's got its hands full. And it will probably need U.S. assistance in some way. And once U.S. assistance comes, well, now we're a target. And the Democrats are more and more siding with the Palestinians. Uh, Even before this, a Gallup poll released in March of this year found that for the first time, more Democrats in the U.S. sympathize with the Palestinians than the Israelis. I think that's a pretty stark finding, at least in the midst of current events that are happening. Gallup's 2023 World Affairs poll revealed that among Democrat voters, 49% to just 38% said their sympathy lies more with the Palestinian side than with the Israelis. 49% of Democrats side with the Palestinians and 38% with the Israelis. I find that to be stunning. Stunning. Democrats who said they are neutral fell to 13% a new law. So they're picking sides now. Uh, And that's... uh, that that's pretty stunning to me. I I and no one no wonder why you see these university campuses pro Palestinian. First of all, the Democratic Party has been hijacked by the Marxist left in this country, and I'll tell you what what, what that means uh, for the Democrats in a sec. What about Republicans? Seventy eight percent of Republicans side with the Israelis to eleven percent for the Palestinians. What a stark difference between the two parties. The Democrats side with evil, whether it's abortion, whether it's this uh, evil in the Middle East, they side with evil. And many Democrats are realizing this, and that's why so many of them are abandoning their party. Good thing we have great leadership in this country. Uh, Right at the top, we have a president who has all his faculties together, and uh, he'll be a great war president. Uh, anyway, Joe Biden Wednesday afternoon stopped by a roundtable with Jewish community leaders to deliver remarks on Israel following the ambush uh, Hamas terror attack that left more than 1,700 Israelis dead. After sending $6 billion to Iran to fund Hamas terrorists, Joe Biden is now claiming he supports Israel and the Jewish community. You can't make this stuff up. And when he's talking about the hostages, um, you know, people are asking him, what are you doing to get him home? And he goes, folks, there's a lot we're doing, a lot we're doing. He goes on to say, I have not given up hope of bringing these folks home. But the idea that I'm going to stand here before you and tell you what I'm doing is bizarre. So I hope you understand how bizarre I think it would be to try try to answer the question. Now, I agree with him. You're probably not going to say everything that you're doing because that would give it away. So I give him that. But then Biden glitched, and he froze. I, I just, look, I mean, I'll never forget, well, I won't go into that. Anyway, I, I, I just think that uh, if we stay true to our values. Boy, that instills confidence, doesn't it? The commander-in-chief. Can't get through a speech without glitching up. Now, um, 
most countries have sent planes into Israel to uh, evacuate their citizens, but not the United States. You know, when Americans in Israel, you know, they're trying to rely on their government for support, for protection, for transportation out. We've left many American citizens hanging in the wind. You know, we're finally trying to arrange commercial flights for these people out of Israel, although many of them have been canceled. Um, uh, the you know, U.S. government is demanding American citizens uh, sign a promissory note as a precondition for any assistance in evacuating from Israel. The so-called assisted departure options were outlined in an email sent to American citizens stranded in the Middle Eastern nation, stating that the U.S. government would offer loans for transportation. The Biden regime's assistance to Americans wishing to depart Israel will come at a financial cost. Specifically, the email states that, quote, departure assistance is provided via loan from the U.S. government, which requires travelers to sign a promissory note and agreement to repay prior to departure. Can you imagine that? This is the first time we've left people behind. We left over 9,000 American citizens in Afghanistan. And now they're telling us um, Americans, well, you know, we'll try to get you out, but, you know, it's, it's on your dime, not ours. Meanwhile, our, how much money are we sending to Ukraine and uh, how much money when services are we giving illegal aliens coming across and we can't pay to bring home Americans trapped in a war zone? The communications manager at the American Accountability Foundation, Yitz Friedman, shared a harrowing tale of his experience while trapped in Israel. Friedman brought to light the abysmal failure of the U.S. State Department to aid its citizens in crisis situations. Friedman and his wife found themselves trapped in Israel after the original flight back to the U.S. was canceled. When they reached out to the U.S. Embassy for assistance, Friedman recounts that they were basically told to pound sand. My wife and I have finally gotten ourselves on the way home to the U.S. from Israel after days of fear and tremendous anxiety. Our original flight was canceled. Why Poland, Hungary, Brazil, Romania, and other countries sent planes to bring their citizens home from the war zone, our government told us to fend for ourselves. I literally called our embassy asking for help. It was essentially told to pound sand, he said. Is that what it means to be an American abroad? Almost all American airlines receive taxpayer bailouts. And they were the first to abandon us. They were first to cancel all flights. And um, he went on to, to thank um, Trump. Freeman expresses gratitude towards former President Donald Trump's foreign policy initiatives. Specifically, he highlighted the Trump brokered Abraham Accords, which paved the way for diplomatic relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. According to Friedman, if it weren't for the Abraham Accords, the option to fly to a friendly Arab country during a time of war would have been unthinkable. Instead, he and his wife were able to leave Israel via an Emirates flight, passing through multiple armed military checkpoints to reach the airport and ultimately finding safety in Dubai. I would like to thank President Trump. After days of fear and anxiety in Israel, I'm finally on my way home to the U.S., Almost every airline canceled all flights, including our flight home. We weren't sure what to do. If not for the Trump-Abraham Accords, this would be unthinkable. There would be no flights from Israel to the UAE. 
to be able to fly to a friendly Arab country when even American flights don't dare at a time of war is miraculous. Again, we abandon American citizens. It's, it's a disgrace. It's shameful. It really is. Now, it looks like um, Israel's um, ground offensive into Gaza has been delayed due to pressure from the international community, including the United States, uh, who don't want them to go in. Now, uh, they're going to go in. Uh, uh, they just give it more time for uh, the citizens of Gaza t- to, to move south. Uh, they're going to get every one of these terrorists, everyone that participated in it. They have pictures. They got videos. They got intelligence. Uh, they say they didn't have the intelligence to prevent this from happening. Again, I, I doubt that. There is no country that sees more, knows more, has more spies. This was such a massive uh, attack. I just find it impossible that Israel did not have pre-knowledge of this. Which begs the question, you know, did they want it to happen so they could take actions? I, I don't know. You'll never know the truth. And that's the one thing about this. Just realize that everything you hear on the news is propaganda of some kind. Like they came out and said that 40 babies uh, had their heads chopped off. Uh, there's no proof of that, you know, and uh, uh, is that true or not? I hope it's not true. Um, but you don't know. And it just, what does it do? When you hear that you put that picture in your mind, that it affects you emotionally. And that's what propaganda is all supposed to be. And they say that in warfare, the first thing, the first casualty of war is truth. Uh, and truth is replaced by propaganda. So you got to be careful. You got to use discernment and everything that comes out. Now, let's look at uh, what happened there and why I think it's possible that it could happen here. Uh, our border, think about what happened in Israel. About 1,100, I think they said it was, terrorists came through the fence in 27 places, right? We don't even have a border, and people are coming in. Multiples, thousands, millions are coming through our border. Unvetted, including Arabs, including Chinese. You don't think sleeper cells are walking through? into our country, the prize is not Israel. The prize is the United States. It's unbelievable what's going on here. Most of the people coming across the border illegally are military-aged males from China, from the Arab world, gang members of MS-13, Child traffickers, drug traffickers. It's insane. And you don't think a, a fraction of them are coming here to harm America? And I'm telling you, people, it is going to happen. One day, you're going to see groups of terrorists, maybe 50 at a time, in 20 different cities burst into airports or a mall or a church and just start massacring people. How do you think Americans are going to feel when they see that? When they see in 20 cities, 
Hundreds of people killed and maimed. From within, that's the key. They didn't have to break through any border. They walked right in. Uh, Since 1990, three million Muslims have come to America, mostly through legal channels. The Office of Refugee Resettlement. Uh, there's so so many visa programs and lottery programs um, that allow refugees uh, a path to full citizenship in five years. And I'm not saying all those Muslims are anti-American. But what if 10% were? 300,000. Well, we got a worse problem than Israel is, does then. So it's, it would be a mistake to think that what's happening in Israel is something just over there. It doesn't affect us. It can happen here, and it will happen here. And it will happen in other European countries. And these invaders, they're not outside the gates. They're here already. They walked right through. And it's going to happen soon, especially if we get involved. And we are involved. I mean, if we get involved by flying planes and bombing and, you know, actually get kinetic, uh, that's one thing. It guarantees an attack against us. But if we just finance, supply weapons, supply intelligence, again, be the proxy, have a proxy war using Israel, we're going to have it here. And it's all on the back of Joe Biden and his administration and his boss, Obama. Yes, that's right. Obama's his boss. And they've left these, purposefully left these borders open. If that's not treason, I don't know what is. Allowing your enemies to come in freely, unvetted, to do harm to your citizens. And they're doing harm now, whether it's the fentanyl thing. Well, 100,000 people are dying a year from fentanyl. That's twice as many people as we lost at the Vietnam War in 10 years. A year. So they are attacking us now. Whether it's the Chinese who are manufacturing this or the Mexicans. People are dying now because of the open border. Not to mention the child trafficking, the human trafficking, the toll of that. And now terrorists are coming in. And, uh, and it's going to get It's going to get bad. So people, you better wise up. You better be ready for this. Because everything you think is normal in life is changing. Uh, by the day, the world is, is really falling uh, into chaos. Jamie Dimon, uh, J.P. Morgan CEO, um, on Friday said this may be the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades. The war in Ukraine compounded by last week's attacks on Israel may have far-reaching impacts on energy and food markets, global trade, and geopolitical relationships. The head of the world's largest bank added that there would be ripple effects that extend far beyond the region. In addition to geopolitical concerns, Diamond said the country's mounting $33.5 trillion debt, the largest peacetime fiscal deficit ever, is a cause for concern. Uh, so people know. Now, here's another scenario for you. That we get involved in this one way or the other. And 
the Arab oil-producing states shut the spigot, oil embargo, of the United States and Europe. Just at a time when Joe Biden has shut down the American energy industry, we can't produce now like we did. We were energy independent under Trump, and now we have to go begging around the world for oil. He's drained the Strategic Petroleum Reserve down to 14 days, which is nothing. Do you see this? This is all a plan. Don't you see it for what it is? It's the destruction of America from within. Run by the Democratic Party and the Marxist leftist revolutionaries. That's going to play out. You're going to see, you know, if we get involved uh, and there's an oil embargo, you're looking at $10 oil. I'm sorry, $10 gasoline. You're looking at crashing stock markets. You're looking at a crashing economy. And God knows what else. So this is serious, folks, what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, We're keeping an eye on it. Um, uh, We have division in this country. Oh, here's another one. Look at this. Democratic Party, right? 12 North Carolina Democrats walk out as North Carolina House votes for a resolution urging Congress to support Israel. So uh, the House uh, in uh, North Carolina, you know, put together a a proclamation or whatever where they're asking the United States Congress is urged to offer full and unequivocal support of Israel financially and otherwise for as long as it takes for Israel to bring justice in light of the unprovoked attacks on innocent Israeli citizens. Well, 12 Democrats cannot bring themselves to vote in support of Israel against terrorists. That launched 5,000 missiles into Israel, killed at least 900 Israelis, wounded 2,500 more, kidnapped dozens of innocent civilians, including children and elderly, slaughtered young people at a, a music festival, murdered babies, It goes on and on, the atrocities. And 12 North Carolina Democrats stormed out when they were asked to denounce the rape of women in Israel. Can you believe this? The Democratic Party is evil. And uh, mainstream Democrats are starting to understand that. Back to the border. Um, You know, we got all these illegals coming across the border and the uh, the Border Patrol is saying a good portion of these illegals are from terror hotspots like Syria and Pakistan and some from northern India. Now, the mainstream media either downplays this or simply ignores it. Uh, according to uh, leaked uh, Border Patrol, over 150 people were caught at the southern border who were on the FBI terror watch list this year alone. And uh, how many got, How many do we not catch that just walk through? Most of the people who come through here, they just disappear. And uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, you know, he was asked uh, if Americans should be worried after Israel was attacked. And this is what he said. Um, so on the home front, over 150 people who are on the terrorist watch list have been seized along the southern border this fiscal year, 
and we've reported that there's been a hundred, over 1.5 million known gotaways since the Biden administration took office. Is this something the American people should be worried about right now? We continue to remain vigilant about terrorist threats to the homeland from anywhere. It is something that we are very much working on, that we are consulting with the Congress on, that we are seeking to secure the necessary resources to continue to work through. And any time we see any threat stream involving a terrorist threat to the homeland, we mobilize every asset and resource of the U.S. government to go after that. And that includes uh, information and analysis that uh, we have shared with the Congress about plots emanating from the Middle East, plots emanating from other places, We'll continue to do that. We also will continue to take steps to pursue a humane, orderly border policy, and we will work with the Congress in the weeks ahead uh, to continue to get the resources we need to be able to do that. I would point out that in the last supplemental, we actually sought additional funding for the border, uh, which was not forthcoming in the ultimate package that went through. Uh, so the, the Biden administration has said to Congress already, we're looking for more resources to be able to deal with uh, the, the continuing <clears throat> challenges that we have at the border. Yeah. Again, never answers the question. More lies. They have enough resources to deal with the border. They just chose not to do it. And when he's talking about more resources, he's talking about more money for housing, for food, uh, for medical care, for the ones that came in here. He's not talking about, and making them legal, he's not talking about closing the border when he talks about resources for the border. Now, what one thing that infuriated me this week, there was a video on Twitter somebody put up at the border uh, that shows uh, border agents uh, picking up illegals across the border, bringing them to tents, giving them refreshments. And then they go back and they fill their pickup trucks with their luggage and bring the luggage to them. So they're taking away, you know, protective measures for the border. And then they're turning our border patrol agents into porters. It's infuriating. And a good portion of these illegals are, like I said, are from terror hotspots. The, the Border Patrol calls them special interest aliens from mostly Middle Eastern countries that have been apprehended at the border. And the, and, and the numbers are alarming. And Americans should be very concerned about these illegals pouring into our country from terror hotspots. I can't believe they're allowing this. Between October 2021 and October 2023, two years, shows that the agents encountered 6,386 nationals from Afghanistan, 3,153 from Egypt, 659 from Iran, and 538 from Syria. These are the ones that they caught. How many did they not catch? Now, uh, there was an interesting exchange on Hannity uh, I think it was Thursday or Friday night, Thursday night, where uh, Cornell West was on with Alan Dershowitz. And you could tell that, you know, Alan, uh, Cornell West is a lefty. He's a Marxist. He's an anti-Semite. And he equivocates what's happening to Palestine uh, with what happened to Israel. And that's what the left does in his country. Now, look, I must say, I feel bad for the Palestinian people. And I'm not talking about the terrorists. I'm talking about 
mothers, fathers, children that are not terrorists. These poor people really have had it bad for a long time. They're basically in an open-air prison in Gaza, in the West Bank. You know, Israel controls everything they do. Egress and, and, and ingress into the, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. I mean, it's, it's, it's been tough for these people. And most of them are, are poor as a result from it. So I feel bad, and I feel bad for any innocent civilian child, woman, elderly, that gets caught up in this. I don't wish ill harm to the Palestinians at all. But the terrorists and Hamas have to be eliminated. Now, um, as I said, uh, Hannity had on uh, Cornell West and uh, Alan Dershowitz. And, and listen to this bang up between the two of them. Now, they talk over each other. It gets a little crazy at times. But I just want you to see the divide that we have in this country between uh, mainstream Democrats, because Dershowitz is a Democrat. He's not an evil Democrat like many of them are. He's not a Marxist. He's not a a leftist. He's a centrist. And uh, going against the left-wing part of his party, the radical end, which is a Cornell West. Now, keep in mind, Cornell West is running for president. Hamas that murdered read, read innocent you, that's people. That's what I said, though, brother. Okay, that's the what I. They said. are largely right, but lacking nuance. No, that, I didn't say lack nuance. That's the title of the piece. Okay, My actual words were. I just be very honest. I got it here in front of the me. words. Do it. The words were that Israel's policies of war crimes and collective punishment against Palestinians. I'll read it to you. Israel and the United and States Hamas are must primarily take responsibility for killing innocent people. Anybody who kills innocent people are engaging in barbaric acts. You said no Israel, who they are, on, what color, what nation, and so forth. Israel and the United States are primarily and The United States has supported and enabled... You explain to this audience. I want you to explain. How, how is Israel and the United States responsible for beheading 40 children? How? I'm talking about the context. 545 Palestinian children died in August 2004. Not one American said a word. I believe a Palestinian baby has the same value as an Israeli baby. So when you have that kind of vicious hatred and revenge, you get response of hatred and revenge. They are all wrong. They're all war crimes. They're all to be condemned. But you cannot simply look at this particular moment without the larger backdrop of an ugly occupation and the ugly attacks chronically against Palestinians. Those are not your words. Largely right. Israel and the United States are primarily responsible for this attack. Professor Dershowitz. Well, I complained when Palestinian children were killed, but I explained why they were killed. Here is one of the leaders of Hamas. For the Palestinian people, death has become an industry. The elderly excel at this, and so do the children. This is why we have formed human shields of the women and the children. Hamas is the ones responsible for the killing of Palestinian children. Also, the Hamas has a term. It's called the CNN strategy. And the CNN strategy is induce Israel into killing Palestinian children by using them as human shields. Then parade the bodies out on CNN, and you'll see what happens. People like Cornell West will engage in crocodile tears, blame it on Israel, when the entire blame is on the Palestinians, Hamas, for using their children, their children as human shields, and then using their children as shields to permit us killing What is Hamas's charter? I have the same outrage when Palestinian babies are killed, when Jewish I want you to have the same indignation oh, when Palestinians are killed. Not when they're, killed, not when they're killed by Palestinians. When the, You can't make a moral comparison. Humanity. When Nazi 
kids were killed in the bombings of Dresden. I didn't have the same comparison when Jewish kids were put in gas chambers and crematoriums. You're a professor of theology. Don't you understand the moral difference I, between uh, deliberately murdering a kid and having collateral damage because there are human shields? You're running for president of the United States. What would you do? Oh, if, wait, 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 wait. Let me tell I you. Let me ask the question. Do. Let me ask the question. Okay. What would you do if they were firing, if terrorists were firing at American children in America and the terrorists were hiding behind Palestinian children? Would you allow the killing of Americans to continue or would you go and get the terrorists even if it meant possibly collateral damage on Palestinians? What would you do? I'll tell you exactly what I would do. First, truth and morality tend to be two casualties in any context of war. I would want to tell the American people the truth. I would tell them what the context is, how we found ourselves in this situation. And I would not jump for a military what, what invasion do? and a genocidal attack on a, a genocidal attack on Gaza. No, no. You, it's you not a genocidal where are they supposed to go? When you're where are they supposed to terrorists? go? This is like Warsaw, 1943. Where do they go? Where do they go? Yes. Let me tell you where they go. Do they where? go to the UN? UN, UN is keeping from Gaza them. to they go, they go to... No, no, no. The UN has places in Gaza. They go to the Eleven Rock Crossing. UN people have they, been killed they, in the last few they days. Go, they go to Egypt. They go... Egypt had to wait a minute. Get out. Let Come me on, make brother. another thing clear. No, Gaza no, no, no. City is very dense. Absolutely. But Gaza it's itself, it. the Gaza Strip, there's lots of room. The Israelis have said, get out of Gaza City. Go to Rafah. Go to Khan uh, Yunus. Go to other places. And you know what Hamas With is no saying? no water, no wait food, a minute. no electricity. You know what Hamas is dark? saying? Hamas is saying, don't go. I'm not here to defend you are here. Defending him off. Wait a minute. Never lie on me Did like you that, ever? I'm defending the suffering and the, and the, of, of Palestinians. I want to hear. Hamas itself committing war crimes. I want to hear you Anybody say. Anybody who commits war crimes are barbaric. I, I'm saying that explicitly. But I, I want I, you to say if the Israeli defense forces are killing children, no, no. are they barbaric too? No, no. Are, are no, they ever no, barbaric? No, no, no. If they target, no. if they target children, yes. Have no. they ever targeted? No, children? absolutely. Never, 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 in, never in the history have they ever targeted a child deliberately. man. Please. No, no. They never targeted a child. One innocent person. Not purposely. No, not, not Are they that pure? Are they that you don't have to be very pure on, brother, not to kill please. a child. All right, it goes on, uh, but I think we've heard enough. And, and that's the problem. That's the argument. That's the conflict right there. Some people believe the Palestinians are victims, uh, and the violence that they're bringing on to Israel is just a result of their persecution. And other people believe that the Palestinians and Hamas are evil uh, terrorists. Uh, and need to be handled this way. Uh, so, and, and it's a it's a Arab-Israeli issue for decades, if not millennia. And it was always going to end brutally, and it'll go on forever. There'll never be a settlement between the Palestinians and um, and, and and the Israelis because Hamas does not want a two-state solution where Palestinian has their own land and their own government and everything else, which is what they have now, basically. They want Israel destroyed. They want every Jew killed. Now, how do you negotiate peace with an organization that wants you, your kids, and every citizen of the country that is Jewish destroyed? I mean, there's no way. It's a fight to the death. And that's where we're at right now. Now, of course, you know that um, President Trump had something to say about this and the leadership of Joe Biden. And he's absolutely right, uh, calling him out. Here's the former president uh, speaking about the reaction to all of this. We reduced the Iranian economy and I withdrew from the disastrous Iran nuclear deal, imposed the toughest ever sanctions on the regime. Joe Biden... Undid it. He undid it all and gave billions and billions of dollars to the world's top sponsor of terror, 
tossing Israel to the bloodthirsty terrorists and jihadists. Britt, is he wrong? He's not wrong about that. And whatever you think of Donald Trump and however you feel about him, uh, does not mean that uh, the policies that he adopted on our border, on Israel's border, and in the Middle East were not preferable to the mess we've got now. And you see, you know, Tony Blinken, and maybe U.S. intelligence doesn't back up what the Wall Street Journal's reporting, but I, be I believe it, what the Wall Street Journal's reporting, and it means that not only do we have to recalibrate our attitude toward Israelis and Palestinians, but we need to stop the fantasy that we can do business with an honorable re Islamic regime. There is no such thing. Uh, at the end there, that was Britt Hume saying, whatever Trump was doing, it's better than the mess than we have now. And it's true. Now, I was telling you before that uh, the Democratic Party has been hijacked from the radical left, the Marxists, uh, who are trying to destroy the country and everything that's good in it. Um, and uh, many mainstream Democrats now have had it. They've had it with the woke policies. Uh, they've had it with this kind of stuff where they're accusing Israel of, of bringing on the murder of babies and rape of women. Uh, they just had enough of it, uh, and mainstream Democrats are moving away from the party. Now, this was a, a new poll that just came out recently. This this blew my mind. 30% of Democrats said they were somewhat likely to vote for Donald Trump for president. 30%. Now, if this poll is even close to being accurate, it, it's over for Biden and the Democrats. Now, I don't know if these 30% are voting for, say they're going to vote for Trump just because they just think that Biden's incompetent and if some other candidate arose, they'd switch back, or it's that they see their party going so far left uh, that they, they just can't take it anymore. But even more spectacular than that or more surprising than that, almost 50% of black Americans say they're somewhat likely to vote for Trump. I mean, Trump only got, I think, 5% of the black vote in 2016. Um, so if he's getting close to 50% of the black vote and 30% of the Democratic vote, what do you think he's getting of the independent vote? Uh, this has a landslide written all over it, and that's why the deep state, the left, the Democrats, the Justice Department uh, are doing everything they can to derail Trump and try to get him in jail or try to get him disqualified using amendments and trying to trying to eliminate him when the majority of the country apparently wants him to return as president. And now more than ever, do we need Donald Trump back as commander in chief? All right, before we go, I just wanted to bring up that uh, we still don't have a speaker of the House. Uh, as I'm recording this, Jim Jordan has been nominated by the Republicans. They're going to take a vote on Monday. But apparently there's 50 rhinos that don't want him to be Speaker of the House because he's close with Trump. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Right now the Republicans are disarray. Uh, we don't have a Speaker of the House. We have a temporary one. Um, we still got a lot of votes to come. Who's ultimately going to be the Speaker? Uh, I, I really don't know. But they better get this done soon. All right, that's all I have for you today. I can go on an extra hour uh, and still not to get to everything because there is so much to talk about. Be sure to tune in on Wednesday for our midweek uh, podcast. Uh, I'm sure a lot will come out. 
uh, in the Middle East between now and Wednesday. comes up by 4 p.m. Wednesday afternoon. Just go to thefinancialphysician.com. We'll have it up there. Uh, and uh, if you want to get in touch with me, just send me an email, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Uh, if you want to come into the office for a financial review, now more than ever, I think it's time to review your investments, review your finances. Come in for a complimentary um, consultation. Just call my office at 732-905-8100-732-905-8100. Thanks for taking time out of your day to join us for the Financial Physician Podcast. See you on Wednesday. And remember, I'm not far right, just right so far. <laughs>